Hey, thanks for downloading this uh, podcast. Um, hope you're all well. Hope um, the new year has started in a positive uh, sense and um, the uh, fun and games of uh, what's going on in Parliament is uh, uh, empowering you to take more control of what you're doing rather than relying on people who clearly have the best interests of us all at heart. Sorry, politics over there. No more talking politics for the rest of the year, I'm sure. Um, yeah, hope you're well. Um, thanks for clicking the link again. So um, this podcast is um, uh, myself and uh, friend Dave Oliver, who uh, up until the end of December last year, uh, 2018, was uh, head of Digital LV. He also set up the LV Innovation uh, kind of lab, um, termed LV Tomorrow, which was called LV Tomorrow, which um, was really looking at future blending future technology with future product development. And in a podcast, we talk about that. We talk about how large corporates and small startups are suffering from the same challenges, um, but also exploiting the same opportunities in terms of blending tech, um, uh, 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 changing user behaviour, changing human behaviour. Um, uh, in, ter- in terms of delivering better product design. And it's interesting to hear Dave's thoughts on how those two um, somewhat uh, conflicting ends of the spectrum, the startup and the corporate, have actually got a lot of common common challenges and, and how some of the um, approaches you can take to getting over those challenges, I say, are the same across the piece. Uh, we also talk about music, a uh, bit of sport, uh, talk about um, some really quite interesting books that, that they, and some training courses that Dave recommends. Um, and, and kind of generally ramble on. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'll come back at the end of the podcast um, with a quick summary and also one or two um, little bits and bobs that are coming up soon. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, okay, there we go. So... It hello, works. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it works now. It didn't work a minute ago. Um, that was probably my, my fault, actually. It's a great... Actually, it is a really good piece of software, cloud-based, yeah. but... It does have its problems sometimes, but I'm getting used to it. Um, so I would have introduced you with the intro, but do you want to say a little bit about who you are, what you do, and probably how we got to know each other, really? Okay, I can't really remember. How do we get to know each other? Yeah, yeah I know, I know, okay. <laughs> you said, I know I said I'd never talk about that ever again. <laughs> no, that's a different story for another day. Uh, so my name's Dave Oliver. Um, I guess I'm a designer. I suppose um, I've done a whole bunch of jobs and uh, most recently I've been working for LV Liverpool Victoria for eight years believe it or not I've just left I left in January so I'm kind of unemployed at the moment which is awesome it's the first time since school I, I just realized it's like the, the first time since well yeah since school so forever because I've, I've never had that time even when I was a student like you're working and stuff wow. so that's amazing and uh, yeah, how you've do we, done well yeah um it's it's just cool like just on a monday like me and my wife go shopping then we go to spin class and i'm the only i'm the only bloke in the room with all these like mums doing spinning and stuff um yeah it's bizarre anyway what's the question how do we get to know each other yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah well you're a designer you're called dave and yeah, yeah I, I think i remember but i'm getting old so you're younger yeah. than me, so you should be out now so uh we, we did a project didn't we when you were working at uh, Green McCampbell mm. and um, yeah. I was in a meeting room at, at the end <laughs> and there was, there was a bunch of people in there and then um, Adam just kind of went and grabbed you I, th- I think you came in surprised and unprepared and uh, you didn't really know what we were even talking about I, th- I seem to think yeah. um, but you winged it and you winged it well and, you know, <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. You, you won career. the job, and yeah, it was good. That's how we got I, to know each other. I winged it. Yeah. Yeah. My, I think that was my constant look of um, not knowing what's going on towards that time in my career at Greenwood Campbell. It was like, I really don't know what's going on, and I'm constantly surprised. <laughs> um, and I inevitably still wing it. We all wing it, right? To oh, a certain yeah. extent. So that's, the one, that's the one thing I've, I've kind of come to clearly realise over the last 10 years, everyone is actually winging it. And most, if you can wing it without necessarily um, caring too much, <laughs> then, then yeah. it's even better. It's the ones that wing it and are petrified. They're the ones I worry about. Yeah, I know. I've just read a really, um, really interesting set of novels. So it was a trilogy about the life of Cicero. Mm. And it's really cool because at the start, it's, he's a guy who's going into politics, obviously in very famous politician and everything else that he did but his yeah. his whole skill was winging it through being an amazing um, orator and the rhetoric that he learned and he went to stay in Greece and stuff to learn how to speak and how to influence and it's basically three massive books about his life of winging it but because he can speak so well everyone believes what he says and yeah it's awesome see that's really it's we always get on to, we always drift off onto things and that's perfect because there was a um, there's something on a TED talk where this guy was proving something very similar. It was basically saying it doesn't necessarily matter what you say, it's how you present yeah. and, and how you come across. And this, this was a, the usual 18-minute TED talk, but this was, he said absolutely nothing. He was just showing people graphs <laughs> and showing people videos of bland stuff and saying, look, this is how engaged I can get you when I'm not actually saying anything. Yeah. And, and it was kind of like, oh, right, it is how you present yourself. It's been a good orator as well. And I suppose... That's how, um, whatever I think of him, and I'm sure you probably think the same, people like Trump mm. and and some of the politicians over here, like Johnson and that, they get away with it. Um, they don't necessarily get away with it with people who have a slightly more refined understanding of what they're trying to do, but with those in their demographic, target demographic, it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we I did a... Um... Uh, like years ago when I was at the MOD I did a presentation course and it was it was awful it was like a week long course in a hotel room where you get videotaped and you, you have to re-watch your videos of how bad you are at public speaking at the start of the week and blah 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 and then by the end of the week you know you hopefully you've improved if you've done it well and it, it was a horrible thing to do like really horrible but really really useful and mm. they just um, gave the, the examples of Bill Clinton so basically the whole course was based around how Bill Clinton delivered speeches and delivered presentations and stuff. Um, yeah, if, if anyone's listening to this and they've thought about doing that course, do it. Really? It's terrifying, but really cool. Yeah, really worth yeah. it. Yeah. It must be something about US presidents. I suppose it's been ingrained in their DNA and their ego. I mean, yeah. I think Obama, Obama probably to me has, is one of the most impressive speakers I've ever watched, listened to, whatever, just because of that ability to make incredibly emotional points and incredibly in-depth in and important points, politically and socially, mm. but make them in a way that was very... And, and I think that's probably why, in certain parts of America, he was unpopular, because he was able to unpick the truth and present it in a way and in a language that Joe, the, you know, Joe and... And Jack and and Neil and Bob, all the you know American American blue collar workers and white collar workers could understand. And I, 
think that's why that was one of the reasons amongst probably a few racial and and um <clears throat> ideo ideological reasons why why republicans just worked for him so i think but uh, yeah i was just incredibly always incredibly impressed he did a he did a speech on nelson mandela's 100th birthday yeah. it would have been his 100th birthday and he was talking about basically talking about trump and it was just he never mentioned it by name but he was just unpicking hmm. little aspects but not doing it in a tub thumping emotional way it was just very you know oh, yeah. you know now we've got pre you know basically saying we've got a president that lies and everyone thinks it's okay <laughs> you know yeah. just 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 think about that for a minute yeah yeah but i do think you're overthinking it like the best thing about obama was just the fact Maybe. that he could uh he could drop a mic with style and get away with <laughs> yeah it. at the end of the white house correspondence dinner yeah that was very good but did you watch that speech <laughs> no no i've just seen the gif <laughs> ah. yeah that, that speech is fantastic though is that, it? yeah you should watch it. it's half an hour but it's just yeah it's just okay brilliant. cool i'll make a note of that yeah yeah um Service design, right? I want to, I, I, as we were speaking before, mm. the um, we, we turned on the button to record. I, I, I was with um, uh, a couple of uh, uh, creatives, uh, uh, creative friends today. Um, yeah. I know they listened to this, so it's Ross Cleaver and Jamie Helmer, and we uh, were at um, using an office, uh, a client of mine's key digital in Dorchester, working with one of their guys called Jamie McDonald, and we were doing a service design piece of work with Dorset County Council, and and we were doing a bit around um, kind of social social isolation, and they kind of came to me because I used to work for them a while ago, and they came to me and said, look, we we really struggle to get uh, inside our users' heads and rapidly come up with ideas and, and challenge convention in terms of how we deliver services and how our customers, users, people, patients, whatever you want to call them, interact with us. Um, and they contact me and they said that we want to just do a day session where you can bring some creatives in and a developer in and work through a process of service design where we get to the end of the day and we've got a, a suite of outputs and outcomes that we can take forward right yeah uh, and i know service design a is a big part of your talent and your ability um and b um something that you're looking to continue moving forward in but it's not really that easy is it it's not a very easy thing to do and, and i was just wondering in terms of when someone came to you at lv or when someone comes to you and says all right dave we've got this problem um we need to look at this the way this service is delivered. What's your what's your starting point? How do you start? How do you get things moving forward? Um, yeah, so I think my, I'm going to start by saying I don't think there is a process to service design mm. or even UX design or UCD or design thinking and all these kind of weird buzzwords that we've created for what is probably the same problem. And the irony is the kind of key principle of service design is that you co-create. Yet by creating all these different little silos, we have siloed ourselves as designers and different types of designers um which i heard someone else talk about the other day and i thought that was fascinating but because there's no single process you you've got to start by understanding what the question is and then work out an appropriate process around that question and for me that inevitably always starts with um some form of observation of who the user is or who the customer is depending on what, what it is you're designing um, and that could just be, you know, a, a meeting over a coffee or a, 
um, a formal interview or like more ethnographic stuff or just just watching them just like shadowing them for a day or a couple of days and the more sort of um people that have the problem you're trying to solve that you can just watch the answers will start to jump out at you and i've never ever had a scenario where that hasn't happened and mm you know more often than not the person who you're watching will kind of start to understand what it is you're doing and, and with any luck they'll start designing solutions for you and then that's like co-creation in its greatest form because you just need to facilitate them who actually have to use a thing designing it and I, to me that always works just observing and asking questions and watching um, so that yeah that, that's where i'd start and kind of what level of pushback do you get with that because i've always come across I'm sure you have two um, normally senior stakeholders and senior managers who um, their expectations around what the solution is yeah. <clears throat> and you kind of have to push back and go, you, you know, they might go, um, there's got to be a technological solution for this or yeah. there's got to be, um, we know the answer already, we're just doing this user research and this engagement just to just to prove our point. Yeah. How do you get, how'd you get over that? Um, and it's probably a bit different in LV because there was there was some support. But how do you get over the kind of resistance, yeah. the kind of um, lack of belief in that in that approach? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The thing is that there was when I first started, and we, I was told to um, create like a UCD process. Yeah. And for the reasons I've just explained, I, I didn't really believe that was the way to do it. Um, and it's really weird when you mute yourself because it all goes like deadly silent all of a sudden. Yeah, you're on your own. When I'm, it's just because I'm, I'm basically having a, having a big gulp of water. So yeah. when, I, when I mute myself, I'm either passing wind because that's what you do in your mid-40s oh, yeah. or I am um, with alarming frequency, Dave. Is that why? Alarming. Really? Alarming. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Alarming frequency. Um, uh, it's part of my midlife crisis action pack. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, stop flatulence. Um, yeah. or, or I'm having a drink. So um, okay. I'm going to have okay. a, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a drink, drink now. I'm not fine. Right, ready? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. So what I was getting at was that when I started at LV, there wasn't really support for that at all. It wasn't a thing. People weren't designing in any way other than just getting opinions of the highest paid person, as that terrible acronym goes. Um, so the way I got around that. There's two things to it. You've got to show them how it works. You've got to get them in a room where you're doing testing or prototyping and observation of some type because as soon as they see one nugget of information, then it's it's sold. And as long as you get a really senior person in to see that, kind of the support will grow and then you can build off of it. Um, but more important than that probably is having the relationship in the first place to do it and to invite someone knowing that they're going to turn up. And I guess that's that's a real cliche, right? Because anything in business is about relationships. But even more so, I'd say in giant um, internal structured corporates, because relationships are the only way to get anything done. So basically, you've yeah. just got to be a nice guy and go for beer with some coffee with people <laughs> and have a chat. <laughs> that is basically the, the first tick on the box in the box, isn't it? Be a nice guy. Okay. And you'll get, and you, and you, and that's that's number one on the list for service designers who want to try and make a bit of a difference. But yeah, I, I, I kind of see, and I've seen situations where <clears throat> people still don't believe it's worthwhile. People mm -hmm. still don't believe it's worth spending time because it takes time and money because it it can cost a lot of money. <clears throat> excuse me to uh, to to really focus on getting under the under the skin of not just users but 
but yep. employees, how do you cope with either those really low expectations and people who think it's a waste of time, and conversely, those that actually absolutely expect the entire organisation to change because you've done some, you've done a bit of service design work. How did you deal with that kind of that, that, those challenges? Yeah, I've, I've come across both of those. Um, the good or bad, depending on how you look at it, thing about people who think it's a waste of time is they tend not to say it to your face. Yeah. They tend to uh, spread rumours and talk behind your back and, and expect you to fail. Um, so that's an easy one. You just prove them wrong by doing it well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's all about the execution when you work for a corporate, isn't it? Mm. You can spend um, months and months designing something, however you do it, but then you've got to build it and implement it. And that's the bit that will make or break your reputation internally. Um, so my advice there would be to stick really close to the, the build part of it and the delivery part of it, even though that may not be your job and you may be handing it over. You know, it's still going to be your profile that gets affected if it goes tits up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I try and do that. And part of the way I did that through, um, through back when I was doing more user experience stuff was building sort of a multi-skill team so we could handle both the development as well as the design and the analytics and all the stuff that, that went with it and try to integrate all those different skills. Um, so you're kind of marking your own homework in a way by doing that, but that's okay because you know, it's, it's about execution, as, um, as we were always saying. Well, I was always saying back when I was employed. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you deal with that? That's interesting because you, you, that makes sense. Keep it, keep, keep it really close to your own, yeah. uh, your own team, your own, your own kind of fields of expertise. How do you... How did you, how, how will you deal with, with the omnipresent um, uh, sceptre specter, specter of marketing and the omnipresent kind of spectre of those that have a little bit of knowledge um, and believe they can, they can railroad the product design development and release into something that is, is quite far removed from what you initially discovered from working with working with humans and users and individuals. That, that just comes back to what I was saying before. Any of those individuals that, or groups of people that I think you're referring to will almost certainly be persuaded when they see the problem and when they see people struggling with the problem or, or using a prototype that's a solution for whatever that problem was. Because mm. you can't argue with that. You, you can't say, oh, well, I think we should do this because if a user's testing something that is working really well, then that you've developed using the right methods and the kind of human-centered approach, it, it just gets it around it. And to be honest, as long as that person's not like the MD or CTO or something, it doesn't matter because they're the people that you've got to get around to that way of thinking. And most of them are kind of buzzword bingo heads anyway. So, you know, they all, they all get service design and user experience design and all that stuff. So it's fine. It's, it's, not, it's not as big a problem, I don't think, internally in big corporates anymore as it used to be so okay uh, so that's interesting because I'll, 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 I'll work with a couple of I'll, I'll directors of a couple of one startup in particular and 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 it's, it's interesting how in that and you've worked with startups I know um, yep. when you're at LV and and you know and I'm sure you work with them in the future I, I find it really interesting how um, corporates are ever Baying for a startup and agile mentality when yeah. it comes to service and product design and solution design, and and actually working in a startup, um, 
corporates really would be completely terrified if we worked in that if if you know if we brought that inside organizations because we have very little money 90% of what has to be done is smoke and mirrors um, and you have to release without necessarily having a product. Yeah. And, and my, I can't think of a corporate organization being absolutely comfortable with that, with that approach. How, 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 yeah. How do you, how do you, you've seen both sides of the fence, right? So you've yeah. had, you've had, you've had, you've had, you've had startups come to LV and say, oh, what do you think of this? Um, how do you, how did you deal with that and how did you balance that those two kind of slightly differing you know they think they're doing the same thing but they're doing things completely differently yeah and i guess i've got a slightly different lens on it as well because yeah. i've kind of done this um lv tomorrow thing which is mm. which was aimed to be a um a startup but funded by a corporate where mm. you know we take a small team and we go out of the office and we we do the dream job that we all wanted you know we we are funded by this great big entity but we can act and behave and by beanbags like a startup um, <laughs> which I actually got in trouble for and that's another story um, oh, we'll come to that in a minute yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no let's not <laughs> um, what's I talking about yeah so, LV tomorrow yeah so the, the key problem is like loads of corporates have gone down this route and created innovation labs and, and they're the guys that will go and talk to the startups and try and partner with them and People like in, in our industry, like um, Aviva, have done it quite successfully, where they've ended up buying a few startups and piggybacking off of it and um, scaling them, which is really cool to see. And, that, and other companies are um, trying to copy that, that sort of model and, and do it, but it just doesn't work unless, unless it's so bought into at the top level and it's not just a tick box. Like If you can see through all the rhetoric that, you can, that we've gone through, if I'm honest, you know, mm. this mentality of digital first and lean thinking and, you know, design thinking and stuff, which is clearly just a, an article that someone's read one day without really understanding it and saying, you know, we need to do this. The reality is big company cannot move quick enough, despite mm. having the best intentions often. Um, so genuinely, LV did have the best intentions and we did want to do these things and partner with startups and try and scale them, as well as building out our own new services and new products. But because we just like we've we they took a small group of people and put them in a corner to do that, unless everyone else has that mentality in the whole company, which can be like ten thousand people, it's not mm. going to happen because it's slow and you've got lawyers to go through and sourcing people to go through and compliance people to go through who who don't necessarily have that same way of thinking. So I don't think going back to your point, the issue is that they do things differently necessarily. I think it's the speed in which they do them, and mm. a corporate just can't get stuff out in the same time frame doesn't that mean uh doesn't that mean well let's take the insurance industry right you look at lemonade right yeah so so brilliant fantastic great idea great product they've used technology in a really smart way they've also kind of turned the whole risk um uh, uh, likelihood <laughs> matrix on its head really um is it inevitable then that that an organ you know without us either of us knowing in detail their structure is it inevitable that they will eventually suffer from the same problems that lv and aviva and all these other guys have in terms of they get to size where they can't you know they literally cannot move at such a pace is that just a natural evolution of business maybe maybe especially in in insurance industry but is that just a natural evolution possibly yeah it's an interesting one with insurance and if you compare it to like 
banking, for example. Banking yeah. is a really good case study because innovation happens um, kind of slowly. Like stuff comes out that's cool all the time, but there's no big disruption that happens like in other markets. You know, like a new app comes out for a bank and then gradually they add to it and then open banking happens and then you can pull all your bank accounts into one. And But that doesn't radically change how we all do banking. Even like Monzo coming out and, and uh, kind of internet banks like that, which have done an incredible job, they haven't disrupted us. They've just no. made it slightly better. And I think mm. insurance is the same. So people like Lemonade that have started up to try and take on the big players don't have kind of the brand and the distribution and the trust and I think that's partly why I think yeah inevitably as they become bigger they'll become slower which I think is what you were getting at but the point is I don't necessarily think they will become bigger I think the innovation is more likely to happen by the big giants who will either just buy them or copy what they're doing yeah and do you think that's unique I suppose if you look at if you look at if you look at social media right you look yeah. at what Facebook have done. You know, they're, they're an advertising channel and, and a media um, platform. I'm not sure it's a kind of uh, relevant example, but but they just go out and buy people. And actually, it seems to slow down. I mean, it slows down their their rate of innovation and change. And and sometimes I think, especially take Facebook, right? They're looking now at merging. What's it? WhatsApp, Instagram, and Messenger all together. Yeah. Into one you know, completely cross. Uh, uh, a cross-integrated platform and that seems to to kind of go against what the rest of the market's doing mm. and, and I wonder if in that example they when they started and when they were growing on that rapid growth they were very much they created the market they created that market for themselves and now <clears throat> they're trying to recreate and reinvent that market but people you know they seem slightly out of touch with their with their uh, consumer base and their customers, and and I look at the insurance, you know, the insurance market, and I and I wonder if, if, actually, Lemonade are in touch with their customers and their consumers, and people like LV and and Aviva and all those other guys are, are not, they don't really, they're not really in, in, in that close in touch with their customers. Hence, why they're trying to, to throw, is that. You know, is that what you found? Is that was that kind of another pressure on why the business wasn't necessarily buying into some of the innovation it needed to because they're getting a bit flabby and a bit lazy? I think, um, yeah, I mean that's something that we talked about a lot and something which we tried to rectify when I was there. Um, but it's super hard when you're so big. Like it's mm. it's you know I can go out and sit in Starbucks and do all the guerrilla research I like, but that's not necessarily going to have the right effect it needs to have to, to change a business model and to behave differently um, but so much of insurance just comes down to brand to be honest and I guess that was what was quite strong about LV it was a, a friendly um, local brand Yeah. and uh, yeah that, that's where all these guys are going to struggle because if you think about the way that the VCs have been funding like insure tech as it's called which is really sure. wanky buzzword <laughs> <laughs> Like the funding is mental. It's crazy. There's so many, so many startups I've been to, like um, loads of accelerator and innovation events with pitch days and demo days and stuff. And um, some awesome ideas out there. Some really good people. Um, really interesting technology. The way that they're trying to trying to disrupt it, but it hasn't happened. And I've been going to these events for five years. Yeah. So the question is, why hasn't it happened yet? Yes. Like, yeah. like so, 
I don't know is the answer. I just think it's sort of brand and distribution and trust mainly. Because it's <clears throat> because there is that because the brand is so strong, um, and and I was never I, I never really understood. I don't really still understand brand, but I, I think you've hit on something there in terms of that trust um, uh, measure and that trust influence. The brand is so strong. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm going to stay with LV. I believe what they're doing. Yeah. They, they they're not going to rip me off. Um, uh, they might be using technology, oh, I don't know this, they might be using technology that is 10, 15 years old and, and Lemonade might be using something that's two or three years old, but actually all I really care about is the fact that if something goes wrong, I'm going to get paid out. Yeah, and the other and thing is, who actually gives a fuck about their insurance? I, I, you only come across it, you only, you only use it when there's something wrong, right? Yeah, and that's where it's different to banking, which you, know, you obviously use every day in most cases. Um but yeah, I mean, that, that's a huge issue that we always had when trying to innovate and you're trying to engage people more mm. often and it's, it's something that your users don't care about. They just have to have or feel like they need to have to have peace of mind. And once you've got that peace of mind, you forget about it. That's kind of yeah. the point of peace of mind, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. what we were selling. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, that, so, so, that, so, so how did LV react? I mean, you obviously, you, you, it came to your mind, you were like, well, okay, hold on a minute, there's only so far we can push this, this rock up the hill yeah. because actually there's a, there is that peace of mind issue. So how, how should businesses, with your, in your experience, maybe not just insurance, insurance, but how should businesses then address service design when actually there is only so far they can go in terms of innovation, in terms of getting their customers to really buy into their the way they're redeveloping their services and tech, How, you know, should they? I'm, I'm sure you're not saying what well, they should throw their hands up in the air and go right. As long as we, as long as we're reliable, um, respectful, and and we deliver the service we said we're going to deliver, that's fine. We should we should sit on our hands. Yeah. What should they do? What what should they focus their innovation on? What should they focus their attention on? Well, it's it's different, isn't it? Depending on what industry and in. if you're in retail or travel. Um, it's, it's a very different problem space for service design and you know the insurance one is a terrible example because because of what we were just talking about it's sort of kind yeah. of a one-off thing um, but service design is so like it's becoming such a front of mind thing and uh, actually I had an interview for a job the other day and they were asking me about like what my what my inspiration was for wanting to be a service designer and why, yeah. why do I do it and yeah. um, it's probably going to sound crap but there were like if if you ever go to a theme park and then you go to Disney World or Disneyland and you look at the experience of of the two things and you know there's like the coffee shop example of what is good service design of you know two yeah. coffee shops that sell the same thing and you go to one over the other because of one's been service design the other hasn't I think a better example of that or maybe it's just in my mind is the Disney World versus another theme park thing because you, as you're going into a ride and as you're meeting the, the staff and you know, you're queuing up and everything about it is thought about. Every little experience and interaction that you have, maybe not in Paris because they're kind of miserable in France, but, you know, <laughs> you know the other ones, it is thought about and it's designed and that's been designed through iteration and observation and, and all the things that it should be. Um, so as long as your problem space allows you to get creative in that way, yeah. then then that, that's the answer to the question because there's a million things that you can tweak and observe and change. And uh, it's like, I got this book today on um, service design methods 
and it has hundreds of different tools and ways of doing it. It's like just watch people record them on your phone yeah. and then design something that they're having a problem with. It's just yeah. It's I saw not, that was you that put that on. You put yeah. that on Twitter, didn't you? Did you put something like that on Twitter about? Um... Yeah, no, it was LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Was it LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, ah, oh, okay. He's got a. He's got a new book, and b. He, that, that that's right. What you were saying, you know. So so in in a way, it, it's kind. Of, this sounds this sounds pretty crap, but but it's reshaping in people's expectations, reshaping people's expectations in terms of, okay, service design. Uh, is innovation can be innovative, but it's it, it might not necessarily be the big bang. It might be tweak, refine, tweak, refine, all focused on creating that yep. that improved experience rather than go, right, we're going to create a new arm of the business and we're going to come up with really cool ideas. Yeah, it's absolutely. More... Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, tried, we spent a lot of time trying to um, define what innovation meant to LV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I saw yeah. like, um, I always used to talk about this when I was doing presentations about it, but these guys, like if you look into academia and I don't know, just even if you just browse LinkedIn or whatever, you'll find loads of different really complicated descriptions. But to us, we just define it as something new and something of yeah. value. And that, that can be a new product or it can be just a new tweak to an existing product. It doesn't really matter. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think you can design anything around that, new and of value. And, and, and that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that bit out. I'm going to use that again. That's, you know... You're full of really good little things, Dave. Really good little uh, kind of sayings, and uh, you're very, you're very astute. You're very astute. What? Yeah, but, um, but I don't make them up. I uh, I copy them mostly. Well, yeah, that's fine. But uh, <laughs> everyone plagiarizes a bit, right? Um, so on that score, then, how would you, in your experience and in your experiences, how did you find agencies and third parties, and in terms of their their true understanding of service design and their true understanding of the concept of innovation. Did you know? Because obviously my experience is quite varied across the agencies. But but what was your as, a, as on the client side, on a corporate side, when when you were trying to engage with agencies and talking to them about service design and innovation? What kind of what lessons did what warning signs did you see? What lessons did you learn? What advice would you give to to someone who was in an agency and or, or as an individual as a freelancer as a service designer what, what kind of what, what kind of lessons have you learned from dealing with agencies like that um i think i'd go back to what i said at the beginning about relationship because um you know people buy people or then they buy stuff and services and um that is so true when you're you're working for a big corporate and you're seeing like suppliers come in on a daily basis to pitch to you hmm. And, um, you know, just having one or two good relationships with really good agencies who you can stick with for your whole time um, is, is the way to do it, really. And it, forming that relationship is, you know, obviously a very hard thing because there's only a finite number of people that, that you need to go out and find and then form relationships with. Um, but, yeah, people by people. That's the first thing. Like, don't just don't just rock up with a bunch of random slides that the person who you're pitching to has probably seen that a hundred times already that same day. You know, it's, it's very hard to find out what it is that, that they want to buy and to try and pitch that in the right way. I'm talking nonsense here, but it's kind of how my brain is thinking about all these pitches no, no, that, no. I, that I've sat yeah. through. Um, and we worked with a, a 
a really, really good consultancy stroke agency. Um, bunch of guys called Flux, and mm-hmm. I think they pitch themselves as an innovation agency. And they embedded consultants within our team um, for quite a long time, actually. And the thing that worked so well with them and us is that we had a very similar mentality on how we um, how we need to basically list out all the assumptions that we have about a project or a piece of work. And um, that's not something that should come out of our heads. That's stuff that came out of all of the stakeholders co-creating yeah. that we are working with. So we list out assumptions, and then we just we just post it, note them up, and then we work out how to test them all. And because we both had that same way of thinking, we just gelled. And, you know, I was, because I'm a probably a UX guy traditionally, that's kind of how UX people think. You, you know, you get something, you don't assume it's going to work. You prototype it and you test it. So to find the right agency who thought like that, and I'm not saying that there's only one person, one agency that does that, because there's obviously hundreds, and I've spoken to hundreds, but yeah. you know, to have the relationship and the way of thinking and to somehow try and gel that yeah it's a it's a hard thing and I, you know i'm trying to think how i met them in the first place now i think they were just introduced to me through a mutual connection but yeah and, and they and they and they simply understood they could put everything that the what they i always find the, the, the best agencies the best individuals the best businesses are those that can can put they empathize and they can understand the context that you're working within, and they can understand the context that your users and your customers are experiencing. Was that was that one of the things that came across quite strongly? I mean, I know you going, you might be going back a bit, but yeah, were that were they able to were they able to understand that relatively quickly? Yeah, I mean, the only reason because most corporates have a you know big ass digital team nowadays. The only reason you mm. you go to agencies is to to make you look good. You know, you you need them to exactly as you said to empathise with what whatever it is you're trying to achieve, and that this is going to sound awful, but that may not That's necessarily fine. be the best thing for the project, but it kind of needs to be the best thing for 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 me or whoever that person is that you're dealing with, because that might not just be a user thing or a commercial thing; it might be a relationship building, stakeholder management thing. Yeah, and uh, more often than not, it is um, because that's ultimately what's going to get you promoted. Like the more people that you can start to influence them and blah, blah. So that's really important to understand who, what the true objective is from the person that you're pitching to. Because mm. it may not be as it seems on the face of it. Well, it very rarely is, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you, you got, you've got to present one thing, but actually you're looking to do something else. Yeah. Totally. So I, I want to kind of move away because I'm, this is a new era, a new chapter of your life, really. You know, you, you, you kind of really take following your service design passion and your, your, your UX and your creative passions. So, so in that in that area, how do you think, you know, with the change in tech and the change in way that users are interacting with businesses, users are interacting with technology, we've, we've had discussions in the past and rolled our eyes mutually, I think, at things like voice and stuff like um, uh, gesture and all that kind of stuff. But how do you think the world of UX uh, uh, in a very broadest sense, because you know experiences are still experiences, whatever the channel. Yeah, there, there are similarities of creating certain emotions and um, uh, uh, certain feedback loops and that kind of stuff. But how do you think tech is going to potentially change the role of service design and UX, and and, and potentially change the way that that you're going to work in the future and the, the kind of opportunities you're going to you're going to bring forward to your to your clients and your employers in the future? I think from a 
a UX perspective, and I've I've said this before and been wrong about it, <laughs> so don't hold me to it. But I think from a UX perspective, at some point, digital experiences will become almost perfect. Mm. And I don't know if it will then become a dying industry or if the industry will evolve into other things and perhaps become more creative again. Mm. I don't know. Um, especially with the with the move to voice and autonomy with interface design. Mm. Like when your car's autonomous, you know, how does it why does it really matter how you interact with it if it's your voice doing that interaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. S- stuff like that, which kind of um, I, I don't know the answer to, but it's the type of thing I, I think about. Uh, yeah. Futuristically, with service design, on the other hand, um, the, yeah, I think the way that tech is going to influence it in the near term is through um, through tools. There's a there's not much out there from a tool perspective on how to effectively um, design services. Yes, I mean there is. That's not right. There is. There's hundreds of things out there, but none of them are any good. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think software is going to start to become more mainstream just for the purpose of service designers who aren't necessarily visual designers or UX designers, but just guys like me who are more interested in the science of design and the, the human element and the behavioral stuff. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd give that as an answer, as, as crap as it might be, Dave. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> no, because cause I agree with you. I, I spoke to um, uh, Andy uh, Milson a while ago and we were talking on, on a podcast and we were talking about that loss of creativity. Yeah. That, that complete loss of creativity in terms of digital, it's kind of, you know, things like um, material design and all that stuff, right, that Google, you know, how dare Google impose <laughs> design structure on creatives, right, in, yeah. in a way, you could look at it and go, oh, that's absolute, and we've, we've gone for it, we've fallen for it, because we believe that um, speed and visibility mm. are much more important than uh, experience and emotion. And, and, and I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think experiences, um, I think transactional uh, transactions have been confused with experiences. And, mm-hmm. and I think we've got, we, 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 we see experiences now as a simple, in, in many cases, as how quickly can we get someone through this form? Yeah. How quickly can we get someone to this, to this conversion point? When actually that's, that's, that's not an experience, that's a transaction. An experience is creating and stirring um, memories and emotions in in the way you interact with people, and and mm. I agree. I think I think rather than speed people through their digital interactions, in some ways, yeah, the autonomous car, fine. You, you know, you just want to get from A to B, and you want to do it as comfortably and safely as possible. But if we're talking about interacting and having a, building a relationship with someone, digital experiences, in the very simplest term, need to slow down. They need to make people stop and look and wonder. And go, oh my God, that's beautiful. Or how did you know? Not, not necessarily how did they know that about me, but I'm happy to to exchange my information with this business because they're listening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think um, another buzzword coming up here, but we spent a lot of time talking about over the last, um, I guess, eighteen months. LV concept of digital ecosystems and mm. interconnectivity between experiences. And I think um, I think that's only going to evolve into a, uh, a bigger part of all of our lives and hopefully open banking is is the first step in that so imagine if your your um, banking app can pull in like things like your will and your mortgage if it's with a different company and then it can recommend like because it knows stuff about you and it might know your assets and your spending habits it can start to recommend you other products you can buy things through that 
through efficiency. But that's kind of the converse to what you were saying about creativity. Yeah. But I, I think both things are going to happen. Um, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm more interested in the, the scientific connectivity of it all. Sure. Rather than how stuff yeah. looks and feels. And it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's a challenge for me because I, I like that, but I'm just no good at it. I'm like a terrible designer. No, yeah, but I know I don't think what you mean. It's it's that dichotomy, because yeah. one, the scientific side of it will be fed and feed into the creative aspect of it. We, we, uh, this is for another another podcast, but as an industry, a digital industry, we've gone far too much down the data route. Yeah, you know, we 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 rely on the data too much rather than relying on gut feel, emotion, desire. You know, we just go, well, this is what people like, so we'll just put more of this shit online. You know, because yeah. we know the data proves it. No one's ever. It's a bit like the old IBM thing. No one ever got sacked for selecting IBM as a software vendor. No one's ever going to get sacked for relying on the data. Yeah. Right. Someone will get sacked for coming up with a ridiculous idea that might just be more memorable. <laughs> and 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 I think there's that there's that this there's that opportunity to connect them in a much more effective way but i haven't come across a business that's done that yet and i certainly haven't come across an agency that understands clearly enough to me the importance of of aligning data will be important you know data is important but having the courage of their convictions and coming up with something different inexperiences and design and products and all that you know all that stuff yeah and it's I mean that's a really like close topic to my heart that the the merger of data to creativity to somewhere in the middle there's this scientific bit that hopefully comes out as a design and um, that that's really what I tried to do when building a team at LV was to mix like our data analysts with our creative designers and our UX people and to try and answer kind of well to try and work out both the what using data and the why using behavioral research and put the two together to try and create better experiences mm. but um that's going back a little while now and yeah done and dusted oh you're moving on yeah. so 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 we'll wrap up in a second i'm conscious of so the next the next steps that you're going to follow in terms of your uh you know where you're going to position yourself you're obviously going to position yourself in areas that you think you can make a difference and you're going to position yourself in in an environment where you're going to get the, the maximum uh, kind of learning, because I know you you know you you're always always learning. So, yeah. so over the next three or four years, where where would you like to? What kind of roles would you like to be involved in? And and why do you think that's important in terms of service design and UX? And I'm kind of, I know there's, they're different things, but kind of we're talking about them in in, in the whole really. Um, yeah, I don't know to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I've worked for big corporates for ages now, and um, I kind of want to go into consultancy. I'm starting to do a few little bits here and there, consultancy-wise, um, but you know, I've got big corporate interviews coming up as well. So I'm kind of hoping one of them will offer me a, um, a consultancy role or a contract at least, where I can start to do more consultancy um, a couple of days a week. Um, I definitely want to move back into more design work. Um, mm. I've probably stepped away from that a little bit and I've done far too much management crap that is, mm. um, you know, it just bogs you down with paperwork and risk and compliance and stuff that I'm no good at and people are better than me, you know, why am I doing it? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I definitely want to go back into a more holistic design role and just call myself a designer again rather than a head of digital or whatever, whatever yeah. I was more recently. Um, 
so yeah, that's the plan. Just have to see yeah. how it pans out. I'm kind of enjoying being um, employed at the moment. So you're talking my language in terms of not wanting to get involved in all the management crap. I, uh, I. That's probably why I looked startled the first time we met because yeah. I was probably dealing with some HR issue that entirely, <laughs> entirely of our own making that, uh, that I had to somehow tidy up in a way that didn't basically get us pulled up in front of who, who knows what. So I don't miss that at all. And, and, and doing what I do now for wonderful clients, but doing what I do now, I do not, and they all know this who listen to it, they, I, I do not envy their position around yeah the management crap at all yeah. it's the, do it mate it's the great thing to do get out of that yeah let the ego leave the ego at the door and um, <laughs> i'm convinced that middle managers do it for the it's an ego thing it's not because they actually want to do it it's an ego yeah definitely yeah i mean i can relate to that i've i've been there and uh, yeah, oh, yeah it is that it is that um but then again i've got a massive mortgage you know so ah well yeah. swings and roundabouts <laughs> yeah yeah you see i'm old dave I'm, I'm really old i'm really old hey we haven't talked about music or sports or any yes. of the other stuff yeah man we're gonna get there are we yeah, 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 oh, okay yeah all right yeah, yeah, i thought you were wrapping yeah. up i was getting scared no i was wrapping up the service design bit of it because um <laughs> because uh but it, do you know it's, the, the service design bit's important right because the guys that listen to this are are like I've said to you before, they're either they're agency side and corporate side. They they are they are developing new startups. They're going through the struggles of actually how do I get this in front of a corporate body, right? Because yeah. like you said, the corporates have got the money, but equally some of them are in corporates going how the fucking hell do I change mm-hmm. what's happening, the nonsense I'm hearing, all the crap I'm seeing. So so I think I know that's why I asked you on. You'll you you know they'll you've you've got a lot of insight and and. I think we captured all that quite nicely. I haven't, but I haven't. I've been winging it for years. Yeah, yeah but everyone does. <laughs> everyone, everyone listening to this podcast wings it. Whatever they, you know, whatever they say, I wing it. I don't even know what I wing, but I wing it. Right. Um, so yeah, the, yeah. Much more importantly, we've put that to one side. So much more importantly, so what? You know, what as a what as Dave? What what motivates you as Dave? Where do you want to? You know, what what. When you're sitting there with a glass of red wine at night and you've stopped thinking about service design, mm. what, you know, I know you like your music like me, what inspires you musically and what, what kind of, what, not just what emotions, but how important is music in your, how important is music in your life in terms of, you know, because I find it as I've got older, and I've, you go from you know I've gone through mental, you know mental health challenges and all that kind of stuff, and there's always this hook of music for me for something to hang on to, whether it's Paul Weller or Bowie or um, obscure American bands from the 1990s that take mm. me back to a different time. What about you? How do you? How important is music to you, and how much do you hang on to it? That is a uh, a very deep question. Yeah, man, you want it? Yeah, it's important. <laughs> yeah, but my answer is so non-deep; it's ridiculous. Basically, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just like a, a I see myself as a 15 year old kid who just listens to punk rock and metal <laughs> still, you know. But I haven't I haven't ever evolved from that, <laughs> either emotionally or physically. <laughs> punk rock, man. I, I, there's a few people I know who, who who love who love, and I don't mind it. So so. Got fifteen year old. What year? How old were you? What year were you fifteen then? Oh God, I don't know. Well, I'm thirty six now. So, so it's nearly twenty years ago. Yeah. So 90, 97, 98. So, 
what do you listen to from 1997 and 98 then when I was a lot older <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it's it's kind of it's a interesting well, it's not interesting to most people it's interesting to me that I was you know I at that point I was really into and I still am really like stuff like skateboarding and snowboarding and, and there, there was a musical scene that went with that uh, mm. which I've never evolved from so I still listen to bands like um, No Effects and Pennywise um, kind of the American skate punk genre, as it was known at the time. Um, and then, yeah, I, I listened to a lot of metal music as well, mainly just Metallica, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. So what, what, cause I'm, I'm not a heavy, I'm a, I'm quite, I don't mind punk, I'm not a heavy metal guy. So mm. for me, me to take my, not first, but early tentative steps onto the metal ladder, yeah. what would you, what would you, oh, what would you point me in the direction of? So I, wow. Okay. I quite like it, but I'm not an expert on it. So, to to, to hook me in, what would you? Do you like um? Do you like Rage Against Machine? Yeah, 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 yeah. Done one then. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Job done. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Why not? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, Rage Against Machine was the uh, the second album I ever bought, and uh, the first was Nirvana, Nevermind, and uh, I listened to Nirvana and I loved it. But <laughs> even like as a youngster, I was a bit nuts because I was like, it's it's not heavy enough. And then I discovered rage and then like other like two heavy bands which i then didn't like stuff like pantera and slayer yeah, I've heard it, eh? slayer yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. i know somebody who loves slayer yeah i know it's on your podcast we need to ask, <laughs> yeah. we, i need to hook up with this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean they're good for, they're good for comedy value but um <laughs> yeah, yeah that was your first album that's it that's how much cooler you are than me your first album was never mind mine if I remember it correctly, it was Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. That's cool. On cassette. Yeah, well, yeah, mine would have been too. But that, that's the only cool thing about me, is that I always tell people that story because it makes you sound cool. But Yeah, but it's a good story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> Although we went, um, uh, we got Bridport, Bridport's only down the road from us, and uh, yeah. they got a really good record, uh, record kind of store, their vinyls and all that. And... Mm. Um, we were there the other day, and I was doing me. We bought Bob Dylan, and I bought some. Oh, nice. Uh, did I buy? I can't remember what else I bought. Oh, Reefer and all that. Reefer Franklin and Stevie Wonder. And um, I found, and you'll be too young for this, but I found Alexander O'Neill, uh, an Alexander O'Neill album. And um, uh, me and Natalie almost yelped with delight. And that's my, my, Natalie's my wife, not somebody I just met on the street. Okay. And uh, uh, bought this album from uh, 1986. Um, maybe a bit earlier for three pound, and it was brilliant. And it just—it's amazing. It just takes you back, doesn't it? Right? It takes you back to a fifteen-year-old boy. It takes yeah. us back to to fifteen-year-old kids growing up in the mid '80s when everything was shit um, <laughs> politically. Uh, but I, I, I'm determined not to talk about Brexit for the next couple of weeks because I'm just—I just despair. But everything was shit politically, and now we go yeah. 2019. Everything is shit politically. Yeah. Um, We've just got more access to better music, yeah. and, and 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 what about and what about sport and now because we mean you've never really talked about sport. Sport. We've talked about your, you know, uh, kind of swimming the kids, your kids, you yeah. know, like swimming and you like the boarding and that kind of stuff. But but you know, what 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 is your what is your sporting uh, delights? You know, don't say boring, the boring or stuff like football or stuff like that. What? But you know, I used what, to like football um, mm. back when. Uh, Back when I was younger, but I, I went to see a game and it was, um, when was I? It was like my first year of uni, so I'd have been 
1920 or something. And uh, we got tickets to White Hart Lane because I was a Spurs fan when I was growing up. Good man. I like you even more, Dave. Yeah. Well done. No, but, no, but the, it doesn't end well, this story. No, no. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, nothing ever does with Spurs. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, it was a yeah, West Ham game at White Hart Lane. Just a, it turned into a massive fight. And I was going to say, I know what's coming. Yeah. yeah. And I was just stood in the middle of it with my mate. And yeah, we were both stoner students. And we were just there going, what? what? What's going on, man? Why are we in this scenario? And that was it for me because I was teetering on the edge of not being into football at that point anyway. And it's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just done with it. Um, but I, I kind of like rugby. I used to play, believe it or not, when I was younger and really enjoyed watching um, international rugby. I go and watch club rugby every now and then. But, um, but yeah, I mean, mainly it's the board stuff. So, um, yeah, skate, snowboard, surf, wakeboard, anything that I can strap onto my legs is what I do, really. See, man, that's amazing. I've yeah. never done any of them. Really? I've never. No, never done any of that. It's just been... I don't know why. I just... Well, I do know why. I severely hurt myself. But... No. Um, there is that. But... Yeah. I've never... Yeah, the rugby I'm, I'm, I'm into. I mean, Six Nations, right? This weekend coming up. So, yeah. So, so that'd be... I'm going yeah. to um, be in Chamonix for the first game as well. Can't wait. So you're going to watch it, right? Yeah. That's Friday night, right? That's Friday night, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah. Uh, well, the, yeah, the... First game's Friday, yeah. England game is Saturday. Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, as long as you don't hurt yourself, I'm sure you won't. I would. I'd absolutely, yeah. Ruin, <laughs> ruin myself. I think it would be wouldn't be any good at all. I don't think. And what about? Because um, I know you read a lot, and I like uh, I like asking people what kind of books, what kind of reading podcasts. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of stuff would you recommend in terms of? Well, every aspect of your life, you know, certainly from a from a professional perspective, but. You know, anything that, that you kind of listen to around um, health, well-being, all that kind of stuff. Anything, any books you recommend? What kind of stuff are you, uh, you know, into at the moment? I don't really um, read too many worky books. Like, mm. um, you know, maybe once every three months I'll get one and I'll browse for it and I'll read the bits that I'm interested in. But um, to me, reading's a relaxing thing and, like, work isn't very relaxing. <laughs> yeah, um, I really got into Robert Harris recently. I've just read all his novels um, in, in a few months, and uh, yeah, he was the guy who wrote the Cicero novels. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't come across him before, what's what's interesting about him is like it's it's gripping. It's like it's not Dan Brown level of rubbish gripping, but it's sure. <laughs> it's yeah. um it's they're real page turners, but they're all based in like tremendous amounts of research that he's done as an author. Um, so yeah, he wrote a really interesting book around um, Munich and what happened with uh, Chamberlain. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it was Munich. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then a really cool book about um, choosing a new pope, and and just like random fictional stuff which is rooted in reality. Um, so that's cool. I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, favorite book ever? Probably Lord of the Rings. Say, oh, I was going to choose a book. Actually, no, I wouldn't. I'd say that I preferred the Game of Thrones books. Actually. Iceland oh. to that. Yeah. Do you know I've never I've never I've never watched Game of Thrones. What? Yeah, never. Right. Never you, watched it. How do you hang up this thing? I, I <laughs> <laughs> I've never I've never watched it. Yeah. 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 Well, well, start with the novels if you can cuz they they're really good. Really. No, man. No. I was like it's like Lord of the, I see you're going to hate me now. I've never re, I've never read Lord of the Rings. What? I've never read No, no. Never my favorite my best my best book, favorite book ever is Danny the Champion of the World. <laughs> Seriously, man, it's the best book in the world ever. Yeah. I, I absolutely adore it. Well, my but, daughter yeah. loves that book, and she's like six, so yeah, it kind of stands. <laughs> it will stay. It stays with you, mate. It, <laughs> it pulls. It pulls you in. What about movie? Yeah. What's, what's your favourite movie then? 
Good question. Probably, it's not. It's not a particularly. Um... See, if you can't answer it immediately, then you haven't thought yeah. it through before. Well, I kind of. It's, it's not a particularly. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, inspiring choice, but it, it's a really. It's your shank, probably. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. Just, yeah. Great just, movie. Always, yeah, I just always love that, and because the actors in it are so amazing. What about, what about you? You're going to say what about you? You might say something from left field. I never know what you're going to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, well, Empire Strikes Back obviously is is the best movie of all time. Hmm. Um, but I'm a massive Star Wars nerd. Uh, I'm a bit of a stereotype Star Wars metal. Like, if I had long, yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> you'd probably find me in Games Workshop if I wasn't too cool. Games Workshop. Uh, uh, <laughs> Warhammer, playing Warhammer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are right. So you've, you you like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, metal. Star Trek, Star Wars. Sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa! Don't say yeah. Star Trek because that's. that's Have not I said cool. something wrong? Yeah. yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> no. Wow. I can see you in Games Workshop, mate. <laughs> That'd be cool, man. Grow that hair long. Well, you sound like a web developer, right? I know. Well, I was going to be, but I was too crap at logic and maths to be any good at it. Like, <laughs> yeah. My my first job was development, and yeah, they just let me go gently. Mate, they just they just copy and paste it now from Stack Overflow. Yeah, That's all you yeah. do with a developer, or or if you're doing if you if you're using any kind of program now, you can just start typing out your your code line and it finishes it for you. It's all nonsense. Yeah, there's no there's no skill in it anymore, right? <laughs> How many people listening to this are developers then? Uh, probably about a fifth. So they're they're fine. They're fine. They hate me anyway. So, but they still listen. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I think they feel sorry for me. Okay, fair enough. Thank you, mate. That's I'm right. conscious. Of, I'm conscious of your time. I think it's been really good because, like I said, the service design aspect of it and your challenges and the fact that you've kind of been in it for for, for eight years or nine years and, and in the industry for a lot longer and you've kind of stepped out of it. And I think it was really good time in that you've had a month out and it just gives you an ability to reflect on things a little bit, a little bit more, right? Yeah, and you can see things a little bit more for what they are. Um, yeah, and, and if anyone's listening who's looking for someone, you need to employ Dave because he's brilliant, but he's really, really expensive. Really, really expensive. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't, I, we haven't talked about money for this podcast either, so I don't know if that, is that a thing or no. I'm joking. No, 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 <laughs> no it's, it is a thing. Money, money for this podcast is a thing, but it's usually the other way around. So, okay, it's so like the guys, self PR, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the other guys have paid me, so we'll. Um, I'll wait for you to get back, and then okay. we'll meet up for beer, and you can, you know. Awesome. You can do that, mate. Thanks a lot. I've, uh, I'm going to press the big red button to stop recording now. So right. thanks for your time, mate. That's great. Hey, hope you enjoyed that. Um, a bit longer than normal, but hopefully well worth it. Um, Dave's a fantastic guy, incredibly intelligent, and um, uh, well worth talking to. Uh, full stop and engaging in any in any projects potentially that you've got going forward. He's he's at um, you can get hold of Dave at hello at david oliver.com So do drop him a line. Um, I've got a few recommendations this uh, week just to kind of keep it nice and short and brief. Um, uh, ahead of that, I'm hoping to get a couple more podcasts out in the next couple of weeks. One of which I'm hoping to have with Amy King, who's the co-founder of People Matter. She's a behavioural scientist and has really fascinating insight into um, how behavioural science can be used to better engage with uh, with 
ourselves as 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 groups with with staff, with clients, with products, with with each other. So I'm hoping to get on in the next couple of weeks on the subject of behavioural science. There is a um, program on Radio Four on the 14th of Feb. I know you probably will be out romancing, but um, it's called The Bottom Lines with Evan Davis, and it's about behavioural science, talking about how corporates. I got a few talk about how corporates have used behavioural science to develop their own their own offerings. Uh, it's got a few senior business leaders on there talking about it. Um, there's a podcast that Russell Brand does um, called Under the Skin. He's got a fascinating guy on there that I've actually seen talk live, a guy called John McAvoy, um, talking about um, how he's transformed his life. It's a fascinating, fascinating talk. He's gone from being a, being inside to being a, a, a world record holding Ironman. Um, there's another one called Clear and Vivid with Alan Alder, ex-Mash. Have a listen to him. He really... It's a very human, um, a very human podcast. Um, and finally, the Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox talks about how to build a bionic human and if humans are still evolving. That's it. There'll be another podcast soon. Take care. Um, see you soon, hopefully.